Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Celebrate our God-given freedom and faith while honoring our Blessed Mother with Girelli's USA Rosary. Each state is represented on this rosary's 50 beads. Red, white, and blue enamel adorn its patriotic crucifix. Get yours today. Shop www.ghirelli.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Setting the record straight once again, Chuck Coughlin on BritBoxMedia.com. I'm doing something a little bit different today. This setting the record straight is going to cover a much longer period than usual. It's going to cite the achievements of a humble and wise man who lived in the 1600s. However, most of our discussion is about now, about the events we are experiencing now. My primary aim, of course, is to set the record straight about Catholic history and things that affect Catholic history. And there have been endless gifts of Catholic concepts from our beloved Catholic Church, which has had so much influence on the entire world, and especially upon the what is known as the West, or Christendom, or to these podcasts as Catholicdom. But in what was known as the West, we've sustained losses in the culture war, in the culture conflict which has had a noticeable adverse effect upon the last four or five generations. This is still Catholic doom. Certainly the society I live in goes about unconsciously acting out Catholic morals and principles. A lot of Catholic doom still exists, often uncredited, unacknowledged, and unnoticed, but it still exists. But today we are at great risk because the biggest change is a noticeable lack in humility. And humility versus hubris is the subject of this podcast. So much of what is best about the modern world is the direct influence of the Catholic Church. We're still in Catholic doom, but it's shifting. And my subject today is hubris. In the area of information technology, IT, information technology, and why we are about to fail from an excess of hubris. I feel it is imperative that I must speak on this issue. Because of the peculiar accident of my life, my working life, a large part of that was spent in information technology. I'm bringing in some of the things I've learned in my own life, in my own professional life, especially as an information technology manager and specialist for 35 years in government on federal, state, and local levels. For it's very important for someone to speak up, someone who has been in this field, who sees what is happening. I want to report to you about why I have these fears that we are about to fail. And by that I mean our civilization is about to fail. Fail from an excess of hubris and a lack of humility. Let's start with an article printed June 26, 
2019, a few days ago, in the Wall Street Journal. I'll read part of it. For the second week in a row, a small Florida city has agreed to pay cyber criminals hundreds of thousands of dollars after a ransomware attack crippled city systems. The council in Lake City, a community of about 12,000 people, approved during an emergency meeting Monday night a Bitcoin payment worth about $462,000 by this city's insurer. This follows a vote a week ago, earlier in Riviera Beach, a city of about 34,000 near West Palm Beach, in which the council authorized its insurance carrier to pay about $600,000. Let me interject something here. When I was IT manager for the state of Florida, for the prosecutors, for the 20 state attorneys, this very little town of Lake City was one of the first cities where I implemented a prosecution management information system. I spent a bit of time there. I do know the people. This is a very small and not a rich town at all. Let's return to the Wall Street Journal article. The hefty tabs are the latest sign of how hackers are hitting cities indiscriminately while raising the stakes with big dollar demands. In the case of Riviera Beach, the ransom was 12 times the size of the ransom that the city of Atlanta refused to pay last year. Six-figure ransom demands are becoming more common, whereas they averaged several thousand dollars just a few years ago, said Larry Ponemon, his Michigan research company. Ponemon Institute focuses on information security and has advised cities that were hacked. There's a lot of copycats out there, and they figure they're going to ride the gravy train, he said. Ransomware attackers are hitting both companies and cities with regularity by finding vulnerabilities in their systems, often by sending malicious email attachments, locking up vital data, and demanding payments in return for decryption keys. These attacks happen every day, and many are never publicized, cybersecurity professionals say. Local governments can be particularly vulnerable if they lack resources to upgrade equipment and security and protect backup data. We do see an increased frequency against municipalities, said Michael Tannenbaum, head of the North American Cyber and Professional Liability at insurance giant Chubb. The Federal Bureau of Investigation advises against paying hackers, saying there's no guarantee they will release data and warning the victims they could be targeted again, or asked to pay even more money for decryption keys. In addition, the FBI says paying only encourages more attacks. But some ransomware victims say hackers' ability to infiltrate backup data left them little choice but to pay. In March, Jackson County, Georgia paid $400,000 from its $10.5 million rainy day fund after realizing a cyber attack had compromised its backups. I thought we had a backup, but obviously we didn't have a good enough backup for this kind of attack, said Joe Hafenberg, city manager in Lake City. Fortunately, we had all the financial data backed up properly off-site, so that was not affected, but pretty much everything else was. Big payouts by local governments are emboldening hackers to jack up their demands, Mr. Ponemon said, citing comments he's read on the dark web, a section of the Internet where users can operate anonymously. At the same time, he said changes to some ransomware tools make it harder for victims to spot and contain the threat before it's too late. That might explain why the ransom is going up. The bad guys can get away with it, he said.
Riviera Beach got hit on May 29th. They took a council vote June 17th, authorized the city's insurance to pay the ransom. A spokesman for the city said Wednesday, the payment has been made and the, the decryption keys the city received are working. Florida League of Cities, which facilitates cybersecurity coverage through an insurance carrier for Lake City and hundreds of other cities, helped decide to pay the ransom. The cybersecurity firm helped analyze the attack and dealt with paying off the attackers, according to Eric Hartwell, Deputy General Counsel and Insurance Counsel at the League. Lake City only has to pay a $10,000 deductible. The event began there on 10th with what the city described as a triple threat malware attack and escalated with a ransom demand last week. The attack knocked out email and hindered city services, and people had to temporarily pay utility bills on terminals at the police station, the city manager said. The attack included a ransomware variant called Ryuk, R-Y-U-K. Emergency services weren't affected. But Lake City authorities worried they wouldn't be able to access encrypted files, such as ordinances, public record requests, and utility information. And now this last paragraph is rather interesting. Some cyber attack victims have refused to pay comparatively modest ransoms. Officials in Baltimore, hit by a disruptive attack in early May, rejected a $76,000 demand, in part because the city would have incurred major costs to restore systems, ensure they weren't still affected, and bolster defenses. Baltimore officials estimated its attack will cost at least $18 million, including IT costs and lost revenue. A spokesman for Mayor Jack Young said Wednesday most city employees have regained access to email and data, though the city's online payment system remains down and the city still can't issue water bills. That's the end of the article. There were two related articles Wall Street Journal published lately. One was entitled Ransom Demands and Frozen Computers. Hackers Hit Towns Across the U.S. Also, all these articles are by John Camp and Scott Calvert. The third article had a headline that said, More U.S. Cities Brace for Hackers. This article said the majority of the top 25 U.S. cities have or are looking to buy cybersecurity insurance. Now, let me explain to you why I think we've become too confident, lured by the appeal and glamour of the Internet. And let's be painfully honest. The character of the typical person who becomes an IT professional is someone in love with technology and is often so technologically oriented that they fail to consider the human dimension and the effect of technological failures on humans and their functions. These excellent workers are unfortunately so in love with technology and the internet that they really fail to consider the human component because they're lured by the latest gimmick, the latest technological breakthrough. If I had any success in the field, it's because I was different, more of an artist, only average or below average at being a programmer. I succeeded in that by sheer persistence and long hours. But generally, the users loved my programs because I created them with the ease of the human's use of them in mind and with the security of the human's use of them in mind, with human ease in mind. And I always fought a great battle as one of the few people who placed primary emphasis on the human components, on what used to be called ergonomic. I was soon elevated to management roles, to directorships, and there I had the authority to ensure the human component was properly emphasized. But it was always a fight 
My very excellent technical employees always thought I was excessively concerned with back. I knew they thought I was a fool, but their users were well pleased. Their systems were secure. Their systems were backed up. Their systems, their systems did not have access to the internet unless it was absolutely necessary because I long ago recognized the danger of the internet. I emphasize standalone systems. I hate to tell you how many places I went to work taking over the management of a department to find out that there were no backups at all. And over the years, I noticed a de-emphasis of backups. Backups kept for shorter and shorter periods. And as new forms of storage were developed, from tapes to disk drives to smaller disk drives to optical storage, very often the old files were not brought forward. The effort to do so was great, and it was backroom stuff. It was work that the top management was largely unaware of. A top management became accustomed to failure to have old information, to have years of history. Banks that used to have information for 10 years or so online cut it to three, now to two, now to 18 months. Presently, Bank of America only has 18 months. Often when banks merged, they just tossed the files of the small banks they absorbed. They just tossed the files of the small banks they brought into their operation. The same process was true of very important criminal justice history information, of sheriff's files that went back for years, of criminal justice history, unavailable. The pressure was great to produce new things, and bringing forward the old files was expensive in time, so they were just lost. Wonderfully valuable criminal history libraries were lost and could no longer be accessed. This is because of a simple fact. No device that could read them existed any longer, or if the device did exist, it was no longer supported by the data storage manufacturers because everybody was plunging madly ahead. Because usually, nothing went wrong. Big Oracle databases recovered themselves miraculously. And face it, the users of the data got used to failures, used to non-availability. And another fact is job jumping, very common in the IT field. Many just cared less what happened and what they'd left behind. Chief professionals moved from job to job and often didn't have to face the consequences of their decision and users expected less and less perfection. So many people have observed how difficult things have become. So many people have been caught in password purgatory just to play a computer game. I love the internet myself, but I've always been aware of the lure and seductiveness of it because it can do so much but it's fragile as a house of cards has always been. We've just been living in a honeymoon period. It was only a matter of time for all the people who lack so much virtue today, so much personal virtue, having lost a sense of absolute values. And seeing the power to do mischief with the internet, they're now employing it. It's not the end of the troubles, it's the beginning. Because we've designed a world, a technological world, that is completely open to the fallen nature of man. Because our optimistic view of man's nature is a fatal flaw. Many, many of us lack humility. We lack an awareness of the imperfection of man, of the fallen nature of man. We need to have a pessimistic view of man's nature. We need to be very humble and conscious of what can go wrong and do harm to others. We should never abandon manual systems, backup manual systems. You can use the internet as long as you can continue to function without it. If a McDonald's shuts down because it's, 
it's technology is down. It has no way to make a hamburger or to make change. Then they're operating on the brink of disaster. Many McDonald's may be shut down very soon for a very long time. The internet is a beautiful intellectual achievement of mankind. But unfortunately, its development coincided with the loss of personal virtue in every area of human. It's a bit of a cliche, yes, but we are really Prometheus, who was lured by the seductive beauty of fire and usefulness of fire before he knew how to control it, before he was ready for it, who steal it from the gods and take it back and burn down our own village. Too many of our systems are built upon the foundation of the fragile internet that could just as well be left manual, just as well be left on local systems, unconnected to anything that stand independently or never connected to the internet, and therefore much more secure. My career in programming and creating systems was in 1964. So the great majority of systems I did, I brought over from previous manual systems. Some of these previous manual systems even employed bookkeeping machines, partial automation, later on punched cards. But the one thing we always did was to preserve the ability to go back to the manual systems, systems that operated without any electricity at all, if necessary. Of course, it was easier if there was a bit of daylight and you didn't have to use a flashlight. This was before the internet. So systems were fairly secure and stood alone. There were no real decentralized systems. The intelligence of the system was all in the central computer with completely transparent, dumb front-end systems. You could look at things on a terminal, but not on a PC. There was no such thing as a PC with decentralized intelligence. These systems performed all the complex work necessary, internal revenue service and everything else, and there was no need for a help desk. That was a later invention of decentralizing an intelligence of systems. Help desks were made necessary by poor system designs, designs with decentralized intelligence that placed great burdens on the users. Therefore, it was a contained system. But even so, we were careful enough to preserve backups and offsite backups. I attempted to design truly backed up systems. These backups took the form of both paper, microfiche, and microfilm that were stored in a Pennsylvania salt mine devoted to the purpose of secure backups. But you also had to back up a method for processing your work. The same functions had formerly been done manually. So we just kept the manual systems. We kept the paper forms in drawers at the, at the desks. People could come in and pay bills or pay a traffic fine just as they always could using the old system. And when the system came back up, if it had been down, you simply entered the backlog. But we did not hold the public up. The public could still process because we preserved the old manual system and forms. Paper forms are immensely reliable. A technology known as optical character recognition can read forms and convert them back to digitized data. Several of my unpublished novels, because of system failures, have been reduced in several cases to a version that only existed on paper, and I was able to OCR it back into digitized form. 
and there were corrections necessary, but not that many. It was preserved. What had happened to the digitized versions? The fault lay with an upgrade to the operating system on my Mac. Their upgrade contained malware that destroyed all my files. I did this because I have a pessimistic view of human nature and know that man has fallen, and confident that life is full of unforeseen problems and sags. Let me give a few final recommendations. As I live my life, and it's a long one, 81 years, I have acquired more and more faith in God. It's become stronger. And I've acquired less and less faith in man by actual brutal experience. I used to have the idea that people were generally good. I thought there were more good people around me than I've discovered there were. One of the worst things is contractors that come in and program in departments and engage in endless slander and competition with the in-house staff. The in-house staff who may have much more faithfulness and sense of proper husbandry of the agency's files. Right now, we're greatly concerned that the systems of public information about our elections have been hacked or been controlled. But much greater attention needs to be paid in another area, the area of the systems themselves, the technology itself. The more significant place is in the machines themselves. Each county has their own machines. These are county systems. They're very vulnerable. I suppose you are aware that China employs millions and millions of hackers precisely to put the noose around our necks through our systems. My recommendation for each county's voting system is this. What should be used as a partially manual system that is disconnected? It's called Scantron. You have a paper backup that can be counted. We're in much too much of a hurry to do the count. A sheet is filled out on which your vote is marked and you sign it. It is then fed into a Scantron device, which counts it and comes up with a hash total, ensuring validity. If necessary, the whole thing can be done manually because you can count the forms themselves. But what do we do instead? Our lust for efficiency, for glamour, for speed, leads us to want to count, leads us to want to have an official count certified by the next day or the next day or two. We have months to come up with a final total and if necessary, can be done from manual forms. We want it the next day, when next month will be just fine. The peer-reviewed journals of our scientists today have up to 50% fraudulent articles in the social sciences. People in the social sciences are largely excessively secular, and they're trusted far too much. Observed over time, they're a rather silly group of people whose beliefs are determined by the latest fads. It has been unwisely suggested that we should trust them to select the people who have the right to bear arms. I can only imagine the mischief they would make in that area. In closing, I want to cite my scientist from long ago, from the 1600s, who I hold as an ideal. It is a Catholic scientist a brilliant scientist and a very exceptionally humble man, noted for being self-effacing. And he's a priest. His name is Pierre Gassendi. Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Fall of the Roman Empire, said that Gassendi was the greatest philosopher among literary men and the greatest literary man among philosophers. In the scientific field, he had many firsts. 
he was able to measure the speed of sound to about 25% accuracy, showing that it is invariant of pitch. He demonstrated that a created vacuum is possible by an experiment using a barometer. He used a camera oscura to gauge the apparent diameter of the moon. He demonstrated by dropping a stone from the mast of a ship that it conserves horizontal momentum and removed an objection to the rotation of the Earth. He explained parhelia in 1629 as due to ice crystals. In 1631, he became the first person to observe the transit of Venus across the sun, viewing the transit of Mercury that Kepler had predicted. He did work in determining longitude through the eclipses of the moon. As an intellectual, his labors on Epicurus have historical importance, but he did hold in opposition to Epicureanism the doctrine of an immaterial and rational soul endowed with immortality, incapable of free determination. He was a leader of a group of free-thinking intellectuals. He wrote numerous philosophical works, finding a way between skepticism and dogmatism. He's one of the first thinkers to formulate the modern scientific outlook of moderated skepticism and empiricism. He clashed with his contemporary Descartes on the possibility of certain knowledge. In character, Gassendi was retiring and unpretentious. With friends, he would give way to a humorous and ironical vein in controversy. He was esteemed by all and loved by the poor for whom he provided in life throughout his long life and in his last will. He was a modest man and a humble man. By combining humility and intellectual brilliance, he produced true results, valid results. Our beloved Catholic Church has a beautiful litany of humility, the last part of which says this, that others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it, that others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. What a viable litany for an intellectual, for a scientist for all the professionals in information technology. This is Chuck Coughlin setting the record straight. On breadboxmedia.com. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I'd like to invite you to join me for a pilgrimage tour to France this September. 
It's based on my book, St. Benedict and St. Therese, The Little Rule and the Little Way. I'll be teaching about the spiritualities and the lives of these two great saints, and we'll be visiting the great monastery of Fleury, where St. Benedict's relics are venerated, and of course going to Lisieux to visit the childhood home of St. Therese, the Carmel where she was a nun, and the great basilica dedicated to her honor. But there's more than that. At Paris, we'll be visiting the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, Rue de Bac with the Miraculous Medal, going on to Vézelay, Nevers with St. Bernadette, paris le Monial, where the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was given to St. Margaret Mary, and then Chartres Cathedral, Mont-Saint-Michel, the Normandy beaches, and more. I think there's not only going to be time for instruction and learning, but also prayer and worship, celebrating Mass in the various locations, and also time for fellowship and a good bit of French food and wine, too. Come and join us this September. If you'd like to know more, go to catholicheritagetours.com. That's catholicheritagetours.com, or be in touch with me through my website, twightlongenecker.com. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough Vehicle at caneford.com.